You're listening to The Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We are your hosts. I am Michael Clary, and with me is Wade Thomas. We are both on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. And while we've got your attention, go ahead and leave a review. And if you find this episode helpful at the end, share it with a friend. Um, But that always helps. And I want to mention uh, our King's Domain Conference that we have coming up. So if you don't know, we, Wade and I co-founded a ministry called King's Domain in Cincinnati. It's based out of our church. But we've got a conference coming up called Gendered Virtue, Men and Women Who Take Dominion. And super excited about it. The speaker lineup is outstanding. Uh, the So Michael Foster, Joe Rigney, Toby Sumter, Shane Morris, and uh, others. Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong. The no, moon landing guys? No, I'm kidding. They're, they're not alive anymore. But <laughs> that would have been cool, too. Well, are, do you do you want to practice necromancy at the no, conference? Or no. <laughs> call up somebody? I personally believe the moon landing actually happened, so it would have been nice to meet Do them. you really? Yeah, I know. We I'm one of the should only do an episode on this. Yeah, I'm sure the Haunted Cosmos guys have beaten <laughs> us to it. Yeah, I'm one of those guys that I'm like, I, I don't see any good reason to doubt it. Totally. And... I don't care. Like Stanley Kubrick, sure, he's a genius, but it just doesn't make sense to me that this would be... I don't think we had that kind of technology in 1969 to... No, I mean, the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. Fair enough. You've seen that. You're like, okay, this guy is just amazing. It's fascinating. Things like some kid could do it with AI now, but the sort of camera work that they did, there's this one where it's like he's he's in a spaceship that's shaped like a ring. Yeah. And it's kind of spinning around. I think he's like walking, isn't he? Yeah, he's walking, but you see yeah. him like walking, but everything kind of spinning mm-hmm. around him. It's like, how did they do that? It's like, well, they had to build this thing, I suppose. And But it's amazing. Anyway, speaker lineup for the conference is outstanding. And we'd love to have you here. The conference is very reasonable, $119. Uh, go to genderedvirtue.com to find out information, to register. And it's not going to be a huge conference. So it's going to be a an opportunity for you to connect with like-minded people. You can meet the speakers and, and hang out with them, get to know them some. And we do have a singles mixer yeah. uh, at the conference. So this will be a chance for people to make friends. And I mean, it, some people might think, well, it's, it's going to be a bunch of weird people, kind of a meat market. That's that's not the intent or the goal. And we will work to avoid that sort of thing. We have seen marriages or engagements come out of things like this in our like tribe and stuff. And we yeah. even have one hopeful coming engagement that came out of like this sort of association, like real, actual, sane, you know, <laughs> marryable Christians <laughs> meet through this sort of thing. So. Yeah, totally, totally. But today we're not talking about gendered virtue. We are talking about baptism, pedo baptism versus credo baptism. It's and a death match. It is. It's a cage match, and blood will be drawn. Uh, some of you may die. Mm-hmm. We'll see. But anyway, that's that we're going to we're going to talk about that today. But I'll just set it up here. It's a it is a friendly debate. I mean, historically, it has it has been a you know bloodbath between Pedo and Credo Baptist because there was so much at stake that isn't quite. It's it's not the same. The stakes are not the same in the modern church because a lot of the ancillary issues of citizenship and that sort of thing have Mm -hmm. been settled. So really, it's more of a matter of exegesis and practice within local churches. Uh, And I'll say that I am a credo Baptist. So Christ the King Church, we are a Southern Baptist church. We are, 
I don't know how well we fit within mainline, you know, just typical Southern Baptist life, but so we're at least not baptizing babies. We're not baptizing babies. We're not speaking in tongues. Right. (laughs) So some of the, well, actually that's not exactly true. We don't have lady pastors, so we're, we don't have women pastors. Some Southern Baptist churches. (laughs) Yeah, they do. Yeah. But, um, so it's a, it is a friendly debate and, most of my heroes, the, yeah, the, yeah. the men of old theologians and so forth that have sharpened my thinking so greatly, many, many, many of those are paedo-baptists, even though I am not convinced that the paedo-baptist position is correct. Yeah. I respect it, and this is, a, this is a different kind of issue than, let's say, a disagreement over women pastors, because there's with women pastors, there is a pretty naked, clear attempt. Maybe I shouldn't use the word naked when talking about Mm -hmm. women pastors, but good call. it's already out there. Um, It is a very obvious attempt to twist and distort Scripture to accommodate a worldly pressure. Mm -hmm. And there are downstream effects of that, and whenever you have women pastors at a church, you, you, the slippery slope, you slide right on into liberalism every time. It's not that kind of an issue. It's more of a, you have... Godly men and women, theologians that will, they have biblical arguments. They're humble. They want to submit to scripture. They are, they, they're really genuinely trying to see what does the Bible say and want to practice their faith according to biblical, uh, biblical prescription. And yet we arrive in different places. Mm-hmm. But even then, we can, we have a lot in common. We can get along together. So it really matters in the sense of a local church, you have to have house rules. Are you going to baptize babies or not? Right. Um, I do know some churches... Are you speak in tongues or not Yeah. in or, the service? Like, yeah, because you, you can't do something and not do something. Mm-hmm. So you have to have some mm-hmm. sort of... And uh, there are a few churches I'm aware of that will practice pedo and credo baptism and just sort of a way to honor the conscience of the individual. That's the sort of thing where I think, well, you might be able to get away with that right now, but eventually you're, you're training your church long-term to, to kind of, you're, you're introducing a tension within the church that is going to be difficult to maintain. Yeah. I think there are other ways to handle that, and we can talk about how we handle it you know, as we go along. But the point being, we're a credo Baptist church, and, but we have such a respect, but we wanted to do a podcast to be able to put our view out there in a way that isn't just knocking down a straw man, mm-hmm. but Wade, you prepared a class for this for our church recently. So you're this is fresh in your mind. You've got some good notes. So I'll kick it over to you, and you can kind of lead us through this discussion. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, we had a what we call them here at CTK is Saturday seminars. Uh, we had a Saturday seminar on uh, the sacraments or the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper. So we're just going to talk about baptism, and I'm going to do what I did. Um, at the seminar, which is to do my best to steal man, the Protestant reformed paedo-baptist position. And we'll even, I'll even uh, shortly or briefly do the same thing with the Roman Catholic paedo-baptist position, but then demonstrate why uh, we we are not persuaded that they are true, e- either one. Uh, and I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that the Bible does not allow for the baptizing of known unregenerate people, which all infants are. But like Michael, 
most of my heroes, I mean, I, I've never sat down and done the math, but I think more than 50% of my heroes are paedo-baptist of one kind or another. So, yeah. so I mean, I, I love these men and their arguments for baptizing infants of one or uh, both believing parents are not stupid, uh, but they're, in the end, I, I find ultimately unpersuasive in light of scripture. But let's let's start with, okay, what is baptism? So the word uh, is literally a transliteration of the Greek word. We don't do that with lots of things, but we did it here. So baptize means to immerse or to dip or to um, repeatedly plunge. The Thayer New Testament lexicon, to dip repeatedly, to emerge, submerge, to cleanse by dipping or submerging, to wash, to make clean with water. Um, so I'm not... Uh, it's on page six here. I'm a uh, little housekeeping there. Michael and I are looking at hard copies because we're old and we don't always use <laughs> screens for everything. We actually use real paper once in a while. <laughs> Got paper Bible, paper binder with this material in it. So we're actually recording this on a real to real analog tape. That's exactly right. Yeah. And there's somebody doing an oil painting of both of us right now <laughs> off to the side. <laughs> that's, um, for, that's for the, the mm, cover art for yeah. our podcast. So to, to baptize, that, that's what the word means, to put somebody into water. Um, so when you say transliterate, what you... It's, so in other words, we translate them. Exactly. But in this case, we transliterate. So instead of saying, go therefore into all nations and immerse people... Correct. We say baptize because we're just directly taking the Greek word and... English filing it or yeah, English anglicizing. Anglicizing. Yeah. There you go. I the and I think that is that that is an important thing to note. I mean, so uh, the Greek word for Lord is kurios. We don't just say Jesus is kurios in in English. We take those letters, uh, six Greek letters, and we translate them into an English equivalent, Lord. And we do that with almost all other words that are essential doctrinal words in the in the New Testament. But for baptize, um, yeah, we didn't translate it into immerse. We we just literally took beta and made it B, alpha and made it A, pi mm -hmm. and made it P, so on. So it, you could, I mean, I think it it is a a fair and faithful uh, way to consider the word when you come across it in the Gospels and in the Epistles to to think of immerse or to dip or to plunge because that is what the word means. So that's what it means. What is it? Um, and it does at least three things, uh, at least three things. First, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is the Great Commission. In those verses, uh, you should be able to notice Christ uh, connecting baptism to his kingship and the fact that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Here's mm -hmm. what I mean. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, all authority in heaven and on earth. Go therefore in light of that authority and make disciples of all nations, not merely making disciples, but baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have not suggested, but commanded. So you're to make disciples, learners, that you are to teach them what I've commanded, and you are to, in conjunction with that, baptize them. So this, so baptism is, is connected to, this is my teacher. This is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and I want him to. I recognize that authority. I put myself under that authority. So baptize me. Um, so it identifies you with Christ as king. That's one thing baptism does. It also identifies you with his death 
and his resurrection. Uh, and here I've got Colossians 2, 11 through 12 that I think says it pretty succinctly. So both his death and his resurrection, and interestingly, it does this because it's immersing you, right? It's not pouring water over your head merely. It's putting you down underwater and then pulling you up. We're actually uh, doing several baptisms this week. Yep, this Sunday, Sunday. we have four baptisms. And that's what will happen. We will see several individuals go under the water, which is a symbol of their dying, their old self dying, and being raised up out of the water, a symbol of their being raised with Christ. Here's just two verses from Colossians 2 that teach that. In him also you, you Colossian Christians, were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So this thing happened to you that was a circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, you go down, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And I'll just quickly say, Obviously, you do see there the words circumcision. And so if you're paedo-baptist, immediately lights are going mm -hmm. off like, hey, here's my argument, man. Well, fair enough. He uses the word circumcision, but don't, know, don't miss those, those words in verse 12, having raised, been raised with him through, through faith. faith, through faith, which none of us have seen our six-day-old or one-week-old or one-month-old infants have faith through which they were raised. So it is identifying you with Christ as your king. It's identifying you with his death. The old you has died, and that's identifying you with his resurrection. A new you has been raised up. That's at least three things that baptism is. Anything you would add there or anything else that comes to mind that, I mean, like you've, you've done more baptisms than me. I've only baptized, I mean, I don't know, maybe like three people. You've probably baptized dozens, I would think. You're doing that Apostle Paul thing, aren't you? Did you are you oh, are you yeah. remembering the household of Stephanus yeah, that yeah. you I did say I, I did forget about the household yes. of Stephanus right. but but beyond that I don't remember anybody yeah um, and most of mine were you know like not even church baptisms I was just walking out to creeks and <laughs> was baptizing people in speedway gas stations no. <laughs> this is a rabbit trail but it's funny there's a I did a member interview once and this this just introduces so many strange kind of things that you deal with uh, and I'll, I will acknowledge that. Uh, either view of baptism, pedo or credo, you're going to have some sticky situations that, that you'll have to figure out. So here's one of ours. There was a woman I was interviewing for her membership, and we always ask, you know, were you, have you been baptized as a believer? Um, and she said that she was hanging out with this girl that she went to college with, mm. and this girl was a discipler, you know, kind of met with her and went mm -hmm. through Bible with her. And they were talking about baptism in a hot tub once, go figure. And she said, well, I haven't been baptized yet. And so her friend said, well, uh, here is water. Right. Why not be baptized right. now? Right. And so she- I've got Oreos and Fanta. Why not have communion? <laughs> yeah. That's right. So she like baptized her in the hot tub. And then it's like, okay, we have to make a decision yeah. as pastors. Is this valid or not? And uh, that in that case, I, I don't know if I'd do it the same now, but at the time, I thought, okay, this is highly irregular. There's yeah. so much wrong with it. Um, but it was in that in that instance. I can't believe I'm admitting this because I'm kind of embarrassed that I went along with it. Now, to be honest with you, because I, I don't think I don't think this was the right no. call. Nevertheless, it was like we we went along with it and thought, okay, she this this is this is an expression of some sort of obedience to baptism by a woman who was ignorant about what it meant and how to do it properly, but. In her conscience, she had done so obediently. Mm -hmm. um, but these sort of things are, we run into them all the time. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, 
either position is going to present difficulties that you'll have to discern your way through in light of the scriptures uh, in pastoral ministry. So neither one is going to be free from those kind of quagmires. Um, but let me first outline our position. So the Protestant credo-baptist position, uh, and this may not be exactly the way somebody else would defend it or outline it, but it's, it's one that I find pretty helpful, and I think you will too. Uh, so baptism, a new covenant sign, must be defined by the new covenant scriptures. And those scriptures do not teach the giving of this sign to unbelieving, unregenerate infants. So it's a new covenant sign, and we interpret it in light of the new covenant scriptures. If I can, uh, think of it this way, and you can't see me probably, I mean, you can't see me, well, probably. You can't see me, okay? But well, we do have the video going. Oh, that's right, okay. So at some point, you may be able to see me. But regardless, <laughs> I think what I have seen some pedo baptists do, and this even happened Saturday a little bit, is they interpret the scriptures or the covenant through the sign. Because the sign must be this thing, therefore the scriptures must mean this thing or the covenant must mean this thing. Don't do it that way. Interpret the sign through the covenant. So the old covenant was to Abraham and his descendants, knowing that, and they were gonna get a particular geographic spot on the map. It was to a particular biological lineage of people, and they were going to get an actual geographical territory that belonged to them as that lineage of people. Knowing that's the covenant outlined clearly in Genesis when God talks to Abraham, now I can interpret the sign. Oh, okay, it makes sense why he would give it to his biological descendants and to slaves and anyone else who entered their households. It's because the covenant is with Abraham and his lineage to get a spot on the map. Now I go to the new covenant, and the new covenant says that everyone who enters it will have peace with God through faith. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. Oh, okay, I interpret its sign, baptism, in light of that covenant, not put the covenant here, or put the sign here, use that as my lens, and then interpret the covenant through that. So that's that's sort of the the heart and soul mm -hmm. of my defense here for credo baptism is that the the new covenant the the entire argument that hebrews is making is that the new covenant is significantly better you almost might say eternally better than the old covenant well yeah you have the old covenant and the new covenant and I, this is why the the it's not merely a matter of can you give me an example of an infant baptized in the New Testament? Or can you give me a specific command that it's only right. believer? It, it's a matter of like, how do you put the Bible together? Yeah. Is What are the promises to Abraham and how are they fulfilled in Christ? How are they implemented in the New Covenant church? Every, every Christian will acknowledge there's an Old Covenant and a New Covenant because it's taught in the Bible. But the, the uh, paedo-baptist view would see continuity from the old covenant to the new, like, like almost like a seamless continuity, but Christ is the capstone, better promises. So the, the new covenant is new in Christ, but everything that's not abrogated is continued. Whereas a credo Baptist view would see like, well, there is a newness of the new covenant such that the sign itself is different. You don't just take circumcision right. of the old covenant and apply it uh, as baptism in the in the new covenant, at the very least, you only circumcise males. Right. Whereas in the new covenant, you baptize males and females. So there's there are some differences that have to be accounted for, and that's that's less surprising to the credo Baptist position because you would expect this better covenant, which uh, guarantees that every member of it, at least this is my contention, guarantees that every true member of it 
has peace with God and is going to heaven. The old covenant, not, and it didn't intend to. Yeah. The old covenant was, it did not intend to claim or send uh, every single member of it to heaven. It, yeah. That was, it was never an intention for it. So circumcision, the meaning of it is you are marked out as as, as a physical lineage yeah. out of which there is a saved, eternally saved uh, group of people. A true Israel. A within true it. Israel. Uh, the true circumcision, right. that sort right. of thing. Whereas... You may you may have a baptized human that is not saved, but baptism is supposed to indicate eternal Correct. salvation. We don't circumcision knowingly. is not. Yes, exactly. So we don't knowingly do. In the in the old covenant, there was no necessity no necessity for me to prove that somebody was regenerate before giving them the sign, because the sign came with, oh, you're from the tribe of Gad, you're going to live over here. Yeah. Oh, you're from the tribe of Asher, you're going to live over here. It came with these these sort of uh, earthy specific promises that the new covenant has promises, but they are better promises. It's a better covenant. And so the only ones who are supposed to get the signs are the ones who are regenerate. Um, it, it may be helpful. Here's London Baptist confession. Uh, just briefly, 29.2. This is kind of our, I think Michael and I would both say we're yes. London Baptist guys. And m- probably most of our listeners who are Baptists are uh, very similar to Westminster in language, except in a few spots. Obviously, this is one of the spots. <laughs> uh, those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Now, I'll stop there and I'll, I'll say real quick, most of my Pado-Baptist brothers, Presbyterian Pado-Baptist brothers, would agree with that when it comes to the ordinance of Lord's Supper. So just like I'm going to try to steel man their argument, I would don't try to straw man us into saying, oh, here's those Baptists with their special goggles they put on to make sure they get only the regent. Well, no, we employ discernment for two ordinances, knowing that no human being is perfect. And you'd, you employ discernment for one ordinance, knowing that no human being is perfect. Yeah. So we both have to make human calls uh, we're just making it for two ordinances and you're making it for one. And even our Pado communion brothers still have to make that kind of discernment when they're appointing somebody to eldership or marrying off their daughters. You're always employing. I just, I, I wanted to get in front of that. Yeah. I've heard that sometimes <clears throat> that sort of straw man about our position is like, oh, just, I guess you guys are just trying to, you know, f- you, you can see, can't you? Who's regenerate and who, who's not? Cause you got your Baptist. Yeah. I read a book, uh, children of the promise. I believe his name is Randy Booth. Mm. He's a, a Presbyterian minister, and uh, I read the book in order to consider the Pado Baptist position, and I thought the book was good. It made a you know a good argument that I, I thought that there is some weight to it. It was a compelling argument, but it was, but he was arguing against like a dispensational Baptist yeah, position, yeah. and I'm like that's that's not that's not the best Bapt- representation of Baptist theology, um, and so it was. It was a straw man thing. So I was yeah. reading a straw man argument. It's like my position was always kind of lumped into like a straw man position yeah. and it was it was annoying, but... <laughs> it's frustrating. I don't think it's helpful either to... It, I don't think that that sort of argumentation is helpful to the listener. Yeah. And and it, it's certainly stunting to the person who does it. <clears throat> yeah, and you know, you and I talked about this off air, but I'll reiterate it here. What you were... What you were representing, you worked hard to do this, is something that hopefully any Pado baptist Presbyterian type of listener yeah. would say, that is a fair and accurate representation of my view. Yeah. That's the goal. That's exactly what we're shooting for. Um, I'll, I'll be quick I'll, uh, on this 
uh, closing out the Credo Baptist position, our position. Here's some language from James White. These aren't direct quotes, but this is just a uh, a summary of an argument that uh, I heard him make in, in a debate with a Presbyterian, good Presbyterian Pado Baptist. The nature of the covenant must dictate how we view the signs and what scripture teaches about them, not the other way around. Because the new covenant is a covenant in which each member knows Yahweh through faith, the sign of that covenant is not given to people who do not have faith or not knowingly given to people who we have no reason to think have faith. Um, and you can see language about the better covenant in Hebrews 8, 5 through 7 and Hebrews 7, 22. In the old covenant, you did not need to trust that the person receiving the old covenant sign was circumcised in heart, a true believer in Yahweh. You do in the new covenant because the new covenant is not to a particular lineage of people. It is to all who believe. My great-grandparents got married when they were young and they stayed true to their wedding vows for 74 years. They lived long enough to meet some of my children, which was their great-great-grandchildren. Unfortunately, healthy Christian households like this have become an endangered species and Christian understanding of sexuality is often more catechized by the world than informed by a biblical worldview. And so as a result, we have increasing numbers of Christians who lack a proper understanding of masculinity, femininity, and the beauty of God's good design. And so Christians who want to obey God's design for sexuality still need guidance from faithful leaders. To address this need, King's Domain Ministries in Cincinnati, Ohio has invited an incredible lineup of speakers to our annual conference. This year, the theme is called Gendered Virtue, Men and Women Who Take Dominion. The lineup of speakers includes Michael Foster, Joe Rigney, Toby Sumter, Shane Morris, and others. And our desire is to help men and women know why God created the sexes the way he did, how we can live virtuously and harmoniously with each other, and how all of this is for God's glory and our good. I'm confident that everybody who attends this conference will leave with three things other than the sweet t-shirt and the other swag that we'll give you. Number one, a biblical blueprint for establishing Christian households that last for generations. Number two, practical application for men and women from experienced ministers of the gospel. And number three, tangible steps that you can take to move forward in your specific situation. This conference is intended for men and women, single or married, or whether or not you have children. You will certainly benefit from the teaching and fellowship that you will experience at this conference. I would love to have you here and I'd love to meet you personally. We've done everything we can to keep the cost low, so it's only $129 per person. If you want to find out more information and register, just go to genderedvirtue.com. I look forward to seeing you there. So I'll, I'll uh, interject something here, and you just tell me if this is something that you plan on getting to later. Yeah. The the thing that I it was not uh, always obvious to me as a younger believer. I've, I've always wondered about Old Testament belief, Old Testament Jews. It's like who went to heaven, who didn't go to. It's like I wanted to know what was a what was a doctrine of conversion, or mm-hmm. you know how were they saved, and you know you. It is really important to emphasize that that the the Bible teaches this in a number of places. Just because you're a Jew, just because you're circumcised, and even if you participated in the civic life of Israel, that did not save you. Correct. You were there was a. It, it's not the same as like a conversion of heart that the Holy Spirit wrought upon a New Testament Christian believer, yeah. but there is a, a requirement of faithfulness, obedience 
to the law and to just a an orientation of towards God that is that is required of Old Testament believers. In the in the New Testament, it is it is different in that we we are what saves a person is very explicitly distinguished from the Old Testament. Yeah. So if we're I imagine like Ezekiel and Jeremiah were are we getting into those? Um, I, so we can, we can definitely bring them up, but I can under, I can underline what you just said, uh, I think pretty succinctly. So Romans one through five and the book of Galatians, both are great places to go to confirm and settle in your heart. Anybody who's in heaven is there because of God's grace through faith. Yes. Nobody has ever gotten there because of obedience to the law. The law cannot save anybody. The Bible is explicit on that. The law cannot justify anyone, never has, never will. So what you had in the old covenant, my best uh, understanding of it is what you have in the old covenant is you had sinful people saved by grace through faith in Yahweh, but God was by and large only doing that through Israel and within Israel. In the new covenant, I mean, you have outliers like Naaman, you have outliers like Ruth, you have Mm -hmm. outliers like Rahab. They're Gentiles. Gentiles, but generally speaking, God is only saving by grace through faith within Israel. In the new covenant, Christ declares, you will go out to the ends of the earth, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In the Great Commission, what we just read, you're going to go out and make disciples of all nations. That was not the the same explicit, explicit mission to Israel. So that's in addition to the fact that now we know the name of our Savior, and they didn't in the old covenant. Yeah. There's that too. Uh, but the, perhaps the largest, biggest... Um, tangible difference between old and new covenant is not how people got saved. That's never changed. It's always been by grace through faith, but that it's gone to all the nations. The message has gone forth to all the nations. That's the difference. And since there is no longer this um, particular lineage that is connected to the covenant, the sign is for those who believe. Yeah. Since there's no longer this, I can trace my, you know, Saul knew he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Why did he know that? because it matters. You and I don't, <laughs> we're not as familiar with our lineage. Why don't we? Because it doesn't matter as much in the same way. Yeah. It's not connected to the covenant. Yeah. That's um, good. Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, the, no, I'm the, saved by grace through faith is a, yeah, that, that is, I'm, that needed to be said. So thanks for, for making sure I said that I real quick, I'll just give you a couple of quotes from John Calvin. Uh, from the Institutes. John Calvin obviously believed in paedobaptism. He argued for paedobaptism in the Institutes. But these are two quotes that uh, from the Institutes, um, book four, uh, chapter 14, that I think I, I just wholeheartedly agree with as a credo Baptist. He says, first, first the Lord teaches and trains us by his word. Next, he confirms us by his sacraments. Lastly, he illumines our mind by the light of his Holy Spirit and opens up an entrance into our hearts for his word and sacraments. Opens up an entrance into our hearts for his word and sacraments by the illumination of our mind. Which would otherwise only, if if he didn't illumine our mind, would only strike our ears and fall upon our sight, but by no means affect us inwardly. Now, I, I'm, I'm not dumb. I know he wrote that and still believed in paedobaptism. If he were sitting here, you know, he'd, he'd be like, well, look, you're not getting the whole, co-, whatever. But that that sentence, I think, is is absolutely true and one of the many reasons why I, I think credobaptism. So it's almost like, see if you would, is this accurately represent what Calvin is saying here? The 
a, the sacrament of baptism in his view, a paedo-baptist infant baptism view. It is a it is something that a person can look back on as an evidence of God's grace working in them. So it's it, it's not like if, as a credo baptist like we look to baptism as a as something that is like okay you're you have faith in Jesus and so this baptism that is applied to you is now something you can look back on as a moment of faith but for the pedo baptist you're the the fact that you were baptized you wouldn't remember it because you're an infant mm-hmm. but the fact that you were baptized means that you're included in this group of people that do certain things through which God works saving graces leading to your conversion is I suspect he would I so I've never heard him use the language of looking back to baptism although Luther did quite a bit but I suspect that he would either mean that you look back once your mind is illumined and you know you know my my believing parents did this for me and I now see it being done for other children within the covenant it it is ministering to my mind and heart the way it should he I think he would either mean that or I suspect he would mean that he illumined the mind, God illumined the mind, the spirit illuminate the, illuminated the mind of the parents, the believing parents. And this sacrament then is ministering to their household through yeah. the illumination of the godly patriarch and matriarch. I suspect that one of those two things is what he would mean. Um, the, the second quote, uh, the sacraments duly perform their office only when accompanied by the spirit, the internal master, whose energy alone penetrates the heart, stirs up the affections, and procures access for the sacraments into our souls. If he, the Holy Spirit, the internal master, is wanting, the sacraments can avail us no more than the sun shining on the eyeballs of the blind or sounds in the uh, uttered in the ears of the deaf. So if the Holy Spirit is not working in, in an individual, if they're not converted. right. And so here, I don't, I don't know what his defense would be for, because he says the internal master, that I, I would think he means the internal master of the subject of the sacrament, which would be the one being baptized. But he did not believe the Holy Spirit was indwelling an infant. And so I, 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 don't, know what, I don't know what his defense would be for this other than what you just said, you know, the internal master subsequently, once I'm regenerated, gives yeah. full significance to what I experienced as an infant or the internal master again within the parents. Yeah, let me just foreground something that we're saying that we haven't explicitly said yet. The paedo-baptist position is not that the infant is saved by the baptism. Correct, absolutely. So to be more more stark about it, the the sacrament of baptism is applied to an unbeliever. Now, that... A covenant child, I would I would acknowledge all of those things. Yeah, but the child does not have uh, ex- explicit saving faith, calling on the name of Jesus Christ, by which all men would be saved. So that so that is that is a stark difference, and that is the the Presbyterian Pado Baptist position, Reformed position. It's different from Catholic and Lutheran, yes. and you'll get into those. Correct. But I just want to highlight that here. The that is one of the main objections, not merely the age of the person but the fact that the person receiving the sacrament of baptism is an infant and thus is not consciously believing in Jesus Christ. So I, I've listened to enough uh, good paedo-baptists who could be my pastor and I would be blessed by it and loved by it. To would know you be that, a member of a Presbyterian church that had a paedo-baptist? If, if there weren't a good Baptist church, yeah, yeah. I would. Um, 
I, I would too. To where, yeah, and I and I think you know we, we probably should explore that before we close the the book. Um, like why why that's the case? Because I think that's it would be useful for people to hear that we how much we love our Presbyterian brothers. But let me just say real quick, I've listened to enough of them to know that I think they would immediately want to jump in when you said unbeliever, because while that's literally true by what you and I mean, there's that's the reason why I usually use the word unregenerate is because then, so okay, I, think, yeah, okay. I think they would say, and I've heard Doug Wilson say this, like, you're a Christian. Why do we do this? Because we're Christians. And he would say that to his one-year-old or his two-year-old or his three-year-old. And so I think- for That's them, pedagogical, not ontological. <laughs> yeah, it is. But I think for them, the household, at least for some of them, and I, 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 all the ones I've listened to who are really thoughtful and really um, have substantive reasons for being pedo-baptist, they really do believe in this thick household principle, which you and I believe yeah, is grace absolutely. in the household, but a thick household principle such that they would call, I think, uh, the children believers, knowing they have not literally explicitly believed but that hey, you would yeah. call you wouldn't call little little uh, little Judah here in you know one thousand BC in in Jerusalem. You wouldn't call him a non Jew. Yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, I would do the same thing in my household. I would. I mean, I, you would do two things at once. In the one hand, you would say you are we're Christians. We're a Christian household. You're you know we we believe in God. We believe Jesus did these things. We believe the Bible. And yet, there would also be a call, son, daughter. Yeah repent and believe the gospel. And that I, I think the, the concern that I have heard articulated is that if you call them unbelievers, then it, it, might, that might, it might stick with them in such a way where they feel like, oh, I, I can accept or reject this. I have a choice. And it elevates their choice yeah. such that they end up choosing the thing that they have been explicitly told they have a choice to do. I mean, Doug Wilson's got a very pithy way of saying it. He's like, that is teaching your kids to doubt instead of believe. And and I know what he means. And I think, you know, so basically his, his jokey way of saying it is he'll be like, you know, in, in some evangelical Baptist, Pentecostal, whatever churches, little Johnny will come up to his mom and say, you know, he's four years old, mommy, I believe in Jesus. And little Johnny's mom will be like, mm, let's not be too sure of that. <laughs> he's like, you want to teach your kids to believe, not to doubt. I mean, you know, it, it's obviously an exaggeration. It's a caricature, but it's done in good faith. I know what he means, and I, he he's not wrong that that would be a problem. I think you don't ever want to assume that God owes regeneration to your children, and yet First Corinthians seven fourteen does mean something when he says the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of the believing spouse, and your children are clean. It that does mean something. Mm -hmm. I don't think it means you give them the sign of the new covenant, but I think it absolutely does mean something. And so uh, I think it is good and appropriate for you to tell your four kids, this is a Christian household yeah. and I do the same. Um, and that's why, I, okay, we've got some little, we get, there's some nuances here in the yeah. way that we had to talk about it. And I'm, I'm used to speaking in one mode of thinking uh, yeah, yeah. that that I've, the the objections that I've heard and familiar with don't immediately call to mind such that it would maybe yeah. trigger a nuance or a caveat and that sort of thing. I kind of have to pretend to be Presbyterian <laughs> to make this work. And I did while making these, you know, while making this material for a lot of time, I was like pretending to sort of be Presbyterian and mm -hmm. even uh, Roman Catholic a little bit. Uh, understand what I mean by that listener. <laughs> Give me some grace. I don't actually mean that I was, anyway. Um, okay, so what is the Protestant Reformed Pado-Baptist position? So I, I want to emphasize here before steel manning it, 
it is distinct from, so uh, you can't just say if you're a Reformed Pado-Baptist, if you're Dutch Reformed or Presbyterian Pado-Baptist, you can't just say, well, we're the innovators as credo-baptists because we, unlike the rest of church history, don't baptize infants of believers because the reformed pedo-baptist position is innovative compared to the Roman Catholic one and the Lutheran one and the Eastern Orthodox one. Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic pedo-baptism, which would have predated Calvin by, you know, 1300 years or something, uh, you know, I'm guessing we, st- we probably started baptizing infants around 200 AD. <laughs> All my Pado-Baptist guys are like, no, we started when the Bible was written, but okay. We said. <laughs> so, you know, all the way up into the 1500s when the magisterial reformers were working, the the understanding for Pado-Baptism, at least the 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 vast, uh, the longest understanding of Pado-Baptism was that it was regenerative. It was regenerative. You baptized your infant and the infant was regenerated, was born again through a faithful baptism. Uh, the priest did not necessarily have to be a Christian. We settled that at the Donatist controversy. He could himself be unregenerate somehow. But if it was said, if the right words were said, if water was used, the right material was used, the infant was born again. And then lost that, at least in Roman Catholic doctrine, lost that regeneration through mortal sin and would have to be restored through penance. Um, So Calvin, because he's one of the greatest theologians of all time, would not I obviously could not defend that you're born again at the moment of your baptism when you can't believe. So his defense of pedo-baptism is different from the centuries prior to him. So here's the reformed pedo-baptist position as best I can articulate it. Baptism is the rite of initiation into the visible church, which consists of, the visible church consists of all those who profess, who profess faith in Christ along with their children. So Westminster Confession 28.4, not only those that do actually profess faith and in obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. And go ahead. Well, I wanted to point something out that is, it's, it's hitting rewind on the, on the conversation about one minute. Yeah. But I just want to, I want to make sure this thing, this, this point is clear, both Reformed Presbyterian Pado Baptists and Credo Baptist Reformed Credo Baptists, like you and I, we both are we both believe things that are a departure from Rome. Correct. The Catholic Church. Correct. So the accusation that well, you Credo Baptist, you're you've got this innovation where you're you're only baptizing, you know, adults or people old enough to believe. That's an innovation, and you're saying well, actually. I wouldn't. We wouldn't deny that that is a departure from Rome, but we think it's a faithful departure back right. to what Scripture teaches. But it's not an out for a Reformed Presbyterian Pado Baptist to say you guys are the innovators and we're not, because there is an there's a, a continuity of, of of practice, this, like the way you see it. It's applied to an infant, but the doctrinal underpinning and justification for it is is unique and that is and it is novel exactly. and i think it is novel in a way that is not true to scripture exactly that's exactly right that's a perfect way to put it so we're both departing from rome uh, but you are departing so reformed pedo baptist brother you are departing so in your justification for baptizing infants we are departing so in our denial of baptizing infants so yep. we're both departing rome and, and Lutheranism did not fully depart from Rome in that regard. 
So this Protestant reform, what you're describing here, that is... That would be uh, Presbyterian, Dutch reformed, uh, Congregationalist. Um, those would be the big ones. Okay, I'm just making sure that yes. we're... Yes, so that, not Lutheran uh, or, or Anglican, high, high Catholic Anglican. Yeah, so Lutherans and Catholics, they have a different justification, a different yes. theological, biblical rationale for baptizing infants. Yes. They're different also from Rome, but they're different from both us and the Presbyterian. Right. <laughs> right. I would say in this one way, I mean, I love my Lutheran brothers too, but in this one way, Lutheranism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Roman Catholicism, they are all the same in this one way, just this one that they all believe, at least you know, expressly in their documents, that the act of baptism done properly regenerates the infant. Lutheranism, so, yeah. Eastern Orthodoxy, and Roman Catholicism all together hold that. So little Timmy, his baptism is scheduled for this Sunday. Yeah, he's he's a uh, you know a month old, uh, so he's going into the church, and the Catholic view, the Orthodox view, the Lutheran view, he goes into the church unregenerate. Yeah. He is baptized, and then he leaves the church regenerate. Yeah. One month old. Correct. Presbyterian view, you go in unbaptized, unregenerate. You leave baptized and unregenerate. Yes, correct. A Baptist view, he fell on the baptistry and got wet. <laughs> yeah, correct. That's There, exa- there that's is great. no yes. theological meaning. That's great. Yeah. And so, and, and I will, when I get to Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism, I don't want to make them sound ridiculous. So Roman Catholicism is is a blight upon creation, okay? <laughs> that is true. Let's clip that. Yes. <laughs> That's, that is Distributed true. on the World Wide Web. That is true. The Pope is a false teacher. And yet, uh, there is, there is a, an internal coherence to their system. And if you don't get that, if you think it's just complete superstition and hogwash yeah. and absolutely, you'd have to be out to lunch to believe this stuff, you're not gonna. You're not gonna thoughtfully engage with people who yeah. hold to it. Yeah, if you just dismiss them as idiots, then they're not. You're idiots, probably right. the idiot. Yes, correct. That's exactly right. Okay, so let me read to you the best defense, at least in in my mind, one uh, one of the best defenses. And and actually, before I read it, no, no, I'll read it and then I'll tell you a better word. There is a great word that underscores this defense, and that if I were to ever become Pado Baptist, which Lord willing I won't, and I have no reason to think I will, I'm thoroughly convinced of Credo Baptism. But if I were, it'd be this verse and the, the label that I'll give you in a moment that would do it. Uh, for the unbelieving husband, 1 Corinthians seven fourteen. for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Your children are clean and holy because one of the spouses is Christian. The word, the label that, um, oh, the guy's name ex- uh, escapes me, um, I'll, I'll see if we can find it and put it in the show notes. Is it Roger? No, no. I think his last name is Schick. He's an OPC pastor, um, but he used the phrase, and I've seen it used a little elsewhere now uh, since I discovered it from him, oikobaptism. That's, that's, guys, a better definition for our Presbyterian belief than pedobaptism. We're not obsessed with baptizing infants. We're not, we're not fetishizing baptizing babies. We want to baptize households, which was the principle in the old covenant. The household got the sign, oikos being household. In, in right, Greek. right, yeah. Um, in the old covenant, they baptized, or they, they gave the sign to you, households, Abraham's household was circumcised. And in the new covenant, we do the same. And that's why that word household appears so much in the book of Acts. Um, they're, they're, and, and, oh, by the way, Wade, 
if we were going to abrogate that household principle, why doesn't God make that more explicit? In the old covenant, it was clear to Jews, your whole household gets the sign. Who's the first? Except pe- for the girls. Except for the girls. Who's the first who gets saved in the new covenant? Jews. If it was, if if God was going to remove the household principle from the sign, why don't we see it in Scripture where He says, "Hey, listen." So that's the best. Uh, that that is a that is a a weighty argument. That's a serious argument. I will just go out and throw one one bit of chum into the water for my Credo Baptist brothers <laughs> to be like, oh yeah, okay. Look at verse First uh, Corinthians seven fourteen again. It says, "For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife." Right. Mm-hmm. Well, then why wouldn't my Credo Baptist brothers, if they had an unbelieving adult husband who was willing to have water poured on? I mean, whatever. I don't care. I'm an atheist, but sure, I'll go along. Would you baptize him? Because household, right? Well, I would say it would only work one direction, which is you would not. He would be the head okay. of his household. Fair enough. So All right. you would not do it because of a believing wife, but if you had a believing husband and an unbelieving wife who was nevertheless willing to submit to baptism, even though it means nothing to her, it means something to him, and then you would baptize her. Why not? Because he's the covenant head of his household, and so would she not be made clean and thus be worthy of the sign? And I, and I don't know, it could be that some of them would say yes. It could be, that, and if so, then okay, you're being, I would argue, you're being consist- inconsistent. Yeah, yeah. But it is interesting for what it's worth that he uses the example of the unbelieving husband being made holy because of the wife, even though the husband's the head. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so whatever that being made holy or being made clean is, like you say, Earl, it means something. Yes. It, I don't think anybody would argue that it has a saving effect. It doesn't regenerate. So this holiness or cleansing, it means something less than regeneration, but more than nothing. Right. Um, so is it sufficient grounds to say, well, this is baptism? Right. Is 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 the way that you would apply that to the infants, but then nevertheless, think, you still have the adult. Yes, that I, is still a question. I think their argument would be, yes, it is sufficient for the sign, just as in the. 60 or, you know, 57 books prior to this in the Bible or whatever. I can't do my math where first Corinthians falls in the canon, but hey, wait, it just is in the 57 books prior to this in the, in the Bible, mm-hmm. it would have been sufficient. There's no reason to think that it's not sufficient for the sign of the covenant because the signs of the covenant have always been given to the households of God's people. So that is a, uh, that is a good argument. I'll, I'll just summarize it again one more time before explaining, well, if you want to offer any objections and then I can explain Roman Catholicism. But here it is again. Throughout the Old Covenant, throughout the Old Testament, God made it plain. The households of God's people get the sign. Nowhere in the New Covenant does he say households don't get it anymore. And in the book of Acts, households are mentioned several times in conjunction with conversion. And here in 1 Corinthians, you have people in a household being considered holy. If God is going to make some big change in who gets the sign of the covenant, why did he make it so foggy? Why did he make it really look like the household still gets the sign, Wade? That's the best version of their argument, I think. Yep, so (laughs) your interlocutor just asked you the question. Yeah. Do you have an answer? Okay, yeah, so, and by the way, you know you're doing a, an okay job at steel manning when on Saturday I had lots of people nodding. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa hold on, hold on, hold on. 
you're in a Baptist church right. teaching a class on baptism. Yeah. You're pre- representing the Pado Baptist yes. view, and it seems like it's working. Yeah. So, <laughs> so again, here, here's I would go back to what I was saying in the Credo Baptist position. Basically, the Book of Hebrews underscores how much better the covenant is, and that teaching, that clear, explicit teaching in Hebrews and in elsewhere in the in the New Testament, that clear, explicit teaching on the difference in the in the in the goodness and expansiveness and graciousness of this new covenant in that everybody in it is regenerate. Everybody in the new covenant is regenerate. That teaching about what the new covenant is informs then what the sign should look like. So uh, because the covenant is this thing, is this better thing in which everyone in it is regenerate, the sign corresponds to it. It's it's incredibly explicit about the nature of the covenant and its goodness. Yeah. Therefore, we interpret the sign in light of that. That would be my... Yeah, the, for me, I, it, it comes down to who are the proper recipients of the sign. It is those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith is... It, it's like Romans 10. Um, how can they call on the name of the Lord unless someone preaches to them? There's this prerequisite of somebody being sent and somebody preaching and the preaching uh, having content that the person receives and the Holy Spirit works through the preaching of God's word such that they believe they're regenerate. And then as a result, they are baptized into this covenant community, which is not merely the household of the Thomases or the Clarys, right. but rather the household of God. You are now brought into this covenant community that it operates through households human households but it is a it transcends human households right. such that if your mother or father or brother or sister um you know you you would hate them and right. compare them says. to so it's like you have to be willing to leave them um they may be your persecutors if they don't believe so it is but you would have been condemned by God for leaving Judah or leaving Benjamin or leaving Asher. The, the old covenant was different. You, you were not permitted to just leave behind your tribe because your tribe was bound up in the covenant, in the nature of the covenant. In the new covenant, your tribe is not bound up in the nature of the covenant. Yeah, And that's why probably Jews two generations after Paul were not keeping track of which tribe they were in, or at least in the same way. It's, it, it doesn't matter and it in needed, the same way. Yeah, and it needed to not matter in order for the gospel to go to the nations because the, the extent to which the Jewish uniqueness is retained within the practice of the Christian faith, those will be additional, that could be additional barriers to the gospel, could be stumbling blocks, not the, not, not the essential parts. It's like it is a Jewish faith in that it comes through a Jewish Messiah. But if the, the norms and the practices and the households and all the things that were part and parcel of Old Testament life in the nation state of Israel, then it's going to, it's going to limit it's, the gospels, of, uh, the, the, the way that it could travel into mm-hmm. other cultures, other, other portability. Yeah. yeah, portability. That's, that's a great word. And that's, that is a, that is a difficulty that we have to just acknowledge that there is some of the some of the things that we see in the Old Testament, the practices, the Jewishness of it. Some of those are good. We want to retain it, um, and not just by wisdom, but it is required. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there it, it can't be. There there will be some limits to it yeah. uh, because the gospel is meant to go to all nations. That is that is the God's plan. Right is to blanket the earth with the gospel message such that. 
people are converted worldwide. Yeah, the, the good news is not merely that now we know Yeshua's name. Now we know his name is Jesus. That's not, the, the good news is that this covenant is a different kind of covenant. It's, it, it does not merely contain blood descendants. Yeah. Um, so that'd be, and, and I will say, I guess I would also throw in that Colossians 2, 11 through 12 as a good scriptural support for that. You are raised through faith. You are raised through faith. That would be a, another argument that I would level uh, at my Presbyterian hero brother who was trying to challenge me on the household principle argument that I just made. You're raised through faith. I've never had, I mean, I have six children. None of them uh, were raised to faith, you know, six days a week, two weeks after their birth. None of them. Sure. And, I, and I wager none of yours were either, listener. So, uh, okay. Let me give you the Roman Catholic position, which is very similar to the Eastern Orthodox one. Um, we actually had, so I, I, I was going to zip through the Eastern Orthodox one in our seminar. And I was like, does anybody even know any Eastern Orthodox folks? And like several hands went up. I'm like, wow. Eastern Orthodoxy is ascendant. Yeah, so maybe, okay, so I will, I will then, there's a little bit of a distinction between the two, so I will uh, explain them briefly and just jump in anytime you want. Um, 55 minutes, just time check. Okay, I'll go, I'll, I'll try to do each of these in the total of, uh, 10 minutes total, 10 minutes total between the two. The Roman Catholic Pato posi uh, position is, God's grace in the regeneration of baptism is not dependent on the ability of the person to comprehend it, and that regenerative grace should be given to infants. So I'll, I'll be the Roman Catholic, the, the studied Roman Catholic arguing against me. Hey, Wade, you're the Calvinist. You know that God sends his regenerating grace to people who are completely dead and can't do jack squat. So why would you withhold it from infants? Now, all of a sudden, you're Arminian. Now, all of a sudden, you gotta wait till somebody can receive the regenerating grace. And of course, my, my counter would be, well, it's not, it's not regenerating, but they hold that it is. They hold that the, the baptism itself is regenerating. Uh, here's from the Modern Catholic Dic Dictionary. Provided no obstacle, obex, is placed in the way, every sacrament properly administered confers the grace intended by the sacrament. So they believe uh, in what's called an ex opere operato uh, uh, sort of grace or action by God. Ex opere operato means from the work worked or from the thing, uh, fr from the doing done. So- Sounds like a transformer. Yeah, sort of, yeah. By Mattel. Yeah, ex opere operato. There's probably, yeah, that would be good. <laughs> Get like a, a priest with superpowers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can Could have that like one. an exorcist. DC needs, <laughs> needs a new superhero. You guys can have that one. Um, so they, they believe when the proper words are said and the proper instrument is used, the child is born again. And that's why in the Middle Ages, uh, they so Augustine, it, it appears, believed that unbaptized babies were lost. In the Middle Ages, they believed, largely believed, unbaptized babies went to limbo. Uh, I read on the Vatican's website an international uh, theological commission on the fate of unbaptized infants where now they say they are willing to leave it to the mercy of God and just trust him. But because baptism causes being born again, the fate of unbaptized people is in question to them. Um, here's canon law uh, 849 from the, from the Pope. 
baptism, the gateway to the sacraments and necessary for salvation by actual reception or at least by desire is validly conferred only by a washing of true water with the proper form of words. Through baptism, men and women are freed from sin, are reborn as children of God and configured by Christ to an indelible character are incorporated into the church. So you're regenerated through baptism if it's done with uh, the proper words and with water. doesn't have to be by priest. It should be, but it can be done by somebody else. Interestingly, can In a hot tub with your... Well, so if it's water and it's done with the right form of words, here's the interest. Here's a fascinating thing. They it is licit, so it is spiritually legal, legal according to Vatican, the Vatican, for a nurse or somebody in a Catholic hospital, let's say, to baptize a baby against the will of the parents. Um, you don't have to do it, but it's licit. It's spiritually allowed to hmm. baptize the baby against the will of the parents. Uh, however. If you don't say the proper words, or if I heard a priest use this uh, example, if it's rubbing alcohol somehow instead of water and use the wrong thing, hmm. not a baptism. It's gotta be the right instrument with the right words, and then it's a baptism. And it causes, causes being born again. So that's the Roman Catholic position. The Eastern Orthodox position is similar, but there is an extra element. So along with baptism, they immediately, right then and there, do chrismation. And chrismation is the anointing oil between the two. Uh, baptism, along with chrismation, accomplishes the regeneration of the infant by the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, this is wild. I watched uh, a couple of them. They immerse the newborn. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. They immerse them and they dip them real quick. And I'm like, wow. You're still talking about the Eastern Orthodox, yeah. right? Yeah. It's yeah. Like I've, I've seen it. it, it it's pretty intense. Yeah. It's like, you see it, it's like, psh, psh, yes. psh. it's like super fast and they do it three times. As three the times one. for the Trinity in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. yeah. And you can just imagine this poor baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's not one of these cute little, oh, look at the sweet baby. It's like, no, it, it, yep. it's pretty traumatic for that baby, I would imagine. Yep. So um, this is from the Orthodox Church in America. Uh, through the act of immersion, the baptized person dies to this world and is born again in the resurrection of Christ into eternal life. And at least I, I saw that at least the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese in North America, they had words, and I think this is pretty common, they had words they say to sort of invite the Holy Spirit into the water, into the actual water mm -hmm. of the baptism. So just like Eastern Orthodox, or I mean, I'm sorry, just like Roman Catholicism, they would hold that the baby is born again through baptism. Now in, in Roman Catholicism, you commit a mortal sin and you're restored through penance. The Eastern Orthodox uh, have sacraments, but they don't officially count them, even though usually when you list, see a list, it'll be seven and it'll be the same seven basically. But I don't think it's quite as defined because there's not a single head in perpetuity, the way they're, the way the Roman Catholic Church has the Bishop of Rome. But so there you have it. And Lutheranism is the same uh, in, in that, not in all of the ways. Lutheranism only holds to two sacraments, not seven. Lutheranism would hold that we're only justified by faith, but it Lutheranism does hold to regeneration at baptism. And so Luther, he had this great quote about how the sacrament the sacraments are even can even extend grace to an unwilling participant. And I just had this image in my head cuz you know Luther, I was like I could just picture him hauling some drunk by the shirt collar into his church and being like you will take Lord's supper. So, uh so like Rome Lutheranism Eastern Orthodoxy faith is there is a, a teaching that faith is present. 
in the administration of the sacrament, either on behalf of the parents or even created within the child, the regeneration itself? So I, I do think Luther held that somehow there was a faith inside the infant that came alongside of baptism. Roman Catholicism, I I believe there's really there, there need not be faith in anybody at the moment of baptism. They can baptize an unbelieving baby, uh, or I mean a baby from unbelieving parents, but that this the the waters cause regeneration. I I assume that at the moment of regeneration they would say that that child does have infant faith somehow. But I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen that definitely articulated. But they definitely say it's born again. The baby's born again. Yeah. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, I think, would be like Roman Catholicism in saying it's born again, and therefore there must be faith there. But I don't know that I've seen it articulated. I do think Luther held to like an infant faith, an infant faith inside that baby. Hmm. Um, and Anglicanism at least seems to allow for a belief in baptismal regeneration, if not commend it. Uh, so I read a, uh, there was a conservative um, breakaway from Episcopal uh, Anglicanism here in the United States um, called the United Episcopal Church, Peter D. Robinson. Um, I, I read a sort of defense of a conditional regeneration, a conditional regeneration that happens at the infant baptism from him. Uh, he wrote, baptismal service is equally clear in its understanding that in some sense regeneration is conveyed at the baby's baptism, but more is required. It is evident that regeneration is dependent upon the child becoming a virtuous and believing member of the church. And his contention was that the articles of religion, the defining document of Anglicanism uh, and the other uh, Anglican defining documents were, were on his side. So Lutheranism and at least high ch some forms of high church Anglicanism would also hold to baptismal regeneration. Hmm. Calvin does not. Our Reformed brothers in that sense, our Presbyterian Reformed brothers in that sense, are like right with us lockstep on regeneration. Yeah. So I hope that makes sense. Um, we can, we can uh, throw some show notes in there that will hopefully uh, be helpful to you if you want to research it further. I'll close this out in a second. Do you have any, I mean, you've got grown children who all four are baptized? Judah's baptized, right? All four are baptized? Yep, all four. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you have any closing thoughts on baptism, what it means, its role in the church, role in the household, anything? Yeah, it's, I would, I would say, I would think of some of the advantages, disadvantages as you see them play out. So this is not arguments for... This is not necessarily arguments based on theology, scripture, or anything like that. It's more just what are the downstream effects of some of these things. Um, it seems as though the mission impulse that is very loud for Baptists. It's like the the Baptist doctrine, our our system. It's like it is it is conducive and easily transferable to mission work, mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't. It doesn't require some of these underpinnings of household and the father, the patriarch, and the family, because it's like the gospel is often going into these places where it is just like the book that you finished reading, the biography. John Patton. Yeah, John Patton. A few you know month mm -hmm. or so ago, you finished yeah. that where cannibals are converted, and they you know there's a sweet scene that you read in the book where he um, hands that mm -hmm. once we're eating yeah. uh, the flesh of other human beings yeah. are now breaking bread together in the Lord's Supper. So there's 
I, I, I think that what you see, and you see these two things, and I'm not sure which is, which affects more, more the chicken or the egg, but what I see in the Baptist world is more, more of an evangelistic thrust, a mission thrust that lines up. It's like the our understanding of baptism favors that. The Presbyterian view, Pado-Baptist view, um, is very strong in household theology and family, children, raising up households, that sort of thing. And the the doctrine corresponds to that. Now, that's, that's an observation. It's not an argument one way or another. What's interesting is that personally, I am much more inclined. Um, it's like I... The, the, the strength of the household theology, that's why my heroes are Presbyterian, yeah. my pedo like I they, they teach me things, and I value what they see there. And it, these are things that I wish were better represented in the Baptist world. And you know the book I wrote was like a, most of the people that have yeah. read it, reviewed it, recommended it, are you know, giving me high, you know, high marks for it, are Presbyterians. And they probably think you're Presbyterian. They might. I don't know. And I, I would imagine some Presbyterians may be surprised after reading the book. It's like, oh, this this dude's a Baptist. I, I say that to show this. Like, I, I, these things are mission and households should not be at odds with one another. Scripture is not odd, at odds with obe- obeying God. Nevertheless, the our our theology affects the way we practice. The, there there are certain almost like gifts can emerge, strengths can emerge within. Theological traditions, uh, and I will just throw in there the greatest example of why the of how those two things should not be at odds: mission and household is the Apostle Paul. So we get our household theology from a man who did not marry and did not have children, hmm. but he was desiring to go to Spain, one of the last spots on the European map and Middle Eastern North African map he had not yet been to. I mean, he was he was a missionary. Uh, he was the missionary of missionaries, and yet yeah. he wrote what, you know, what informs all our household theology, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So these these two things should not be at odds. But yes, I agree; they are represented in sort of our two different traditions. Um, I'm not, a, and I, I I don't foresee any point where I will be persuaded that we are to give the sign of the new covenant to unregenerate people, which all babies are, apart from John the Baptist. They're all unregenerate <laughs> people. Uh, but what I am blessed by from my Presbyterian brothers uh, is a commitment to God's real grace in the household and a seriousness about soteriology and ecclesiology, what God's doing. They, they believe strongly, conservative Presbyterians believe strongly in the sovereignty of God and the seriousness with which we should worship God and the seriousness of what he's doing in Christian households. And all of those things are wonderful. And I want to support them in it, despite the fact that we disagree with them about baptism. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that Christ is Lord over all. Uh, And may he bless our churches in the many years to come. Thank you for listening to the Current Reality Podcast. Send us any feedback to currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. If you found this episode helpful, consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing it with a friend. And for more information about the King's Domain, Gendered Virtue, Men and Women Who Take Dominion conference in April of next year, check the link in the show notes. See you next time.